From Washington, this is Political Theater, Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. The Senate is what is known as a continuing body. For our purposes, we're going to focus on what that means for elections. And helping us digest that and discuss it uh, is Nathan Gonzalez, the editor and publisher of Inside Elections. And we're going to talk about your first batch of race ratings for the 2020 Senate races. Nathan, welcome. Always a pleasure for you, Jason. Oh, I, you're, you, you flatter me, sir. <laughs> I'm contractually <laughs> obligated to say that. That's okay. <laughs> I'm glad we uh, put that clause in there. Uh, Nathan, let's talk about the your 2020 race ratings. They were in roll call this week. We have a nifty interactive guide for folks. Brand uh, new. To, to, yeah, to brand new to go along with uh, with your pros. Uh, what is the the sort of the the top line before we get into the nitty gritty of what you you have in this first batch of race ratings? Well, first, I realize that I'm I'm getting old. This is a shocker to everyone out there. Um, but I'm going through old Rothenberg political report archives that are located in my basement. And our, I'm trying old, to get, our old friends do Rothenberg, and I'm trying to get them out of my basement. But anyway, my one my first one of my first two stories that I wrote for the Rothenberg political report was in 2001 about Susan Collins of Maine and her reelection effort. And I realized that this is my fourth cycle with this class of senators. And so uh, I don't know if that's uh, comforting or scary, but I, it, it's, it's kind of fun. It just shows that I'm old. Um, so a couple things stand Not out to me. Not as old as me, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things, a couple things stand out to me about this class. First of all, that the map is completely different than the 2018 map. The 2018 map, Democrats were defending 26 Senate seats. Republicans were only defending nine uh, this, in 2020, Republicans are defending more. They're defending 22 states. Democrats are defending 12. But amidst those kind of big numbers, there really looks like a very few number of initial opportunities, particularly if you just look at there's only two Republican senators representing Hillary Clinton states. That's Cory Gardner and Susan Collins. And then two Colorado Democrats uh, and two Democrats in um, states that Donald Trump carried as Gary Peters and in Michigan. Uh, Doug, in Michigan and Doug Jones of Alabama. So uh, you know, we got a mirror image a little bit of, we the, got, of the 2018 map. Right, right? We got a long way to go, but mm-hmm. the initial list of competitive seats, and those aren't the only ones. We'll, we could talk about Tom Tillis and of North Carolina, David Perdue of Georgia, but you know, we're still, we're probably talking about less, about 10 or less truly competitive races at this stage. And, you know, one of the quirks of our electoral system, this gets to why the Senate is a continuing body, is because it doesn't adjourn. You never have a, a moment where all 100 senators are up for re-election. You have a third, there are three classes, so any, anywhere from 33 to 34 senators are up in any one given campaign cycle. And this makes just for very different dynamics. I mean, this is one of the reasons that we did not see that much of a, we didn't see a flip uh, in, in this last election cycle because the way the map was stacked out for it favored Senate Republicans and they had a the Democrats had a much tougher route to retaking the Senate particularly in the states as you said that you know most of them you know featured states that Donald Trump won compared to the House uh, contest where Democrats had a much larger shot because House tends to mirror public opinion a little bit more uh, all 435 members are up um, in in every election cycle except for the uh, delegate in the, co- the resident commissioner of Puerto Rico, the only four, <laughs> the only member of the House who has a four-year term um, and does not vote, of course, uh, like like other members of of the House. But it, it leads to very different dynamics, uh, and and th- and we see this playing out now in the last few cycles. Right. I mean, you see, in 2018, the reason why 
that class was so heavy with Democrats is because it was still dealing with the 2006 Senate class. It was a great year for Democrats. It was kind of an anti-president George W. Bush wave. Democrats, you know, had a great year. That means you have to defend that class of senators going forward. I think that class was fortunate. They came up first in 2012, which was President Obama's reelection. So they kind of rode in on, on some of those coattails. And in 2018, it's kind of a mixed bag. They were they were dealing with uh, maybe a good Democratic, big D Democratic environment, but in some very red states. And that's where some, you know, some won and many of them lost, but some survived like uh, uh, John Tester of Montana. The, I think the a good sort of illustration of how this worked out is you mentioned Tester, but also Claire McCaskill. I mean, they they, they both came in in 2006. McCaskill, uh, you know, was sort of blessed with, uh, you know, a, a, a fairly weak couple of opponents, particularly her re-election opponent in 2012. Uh, you know, uh, former Rep. Todd Aiken, who had made some, you know, sort of impolitic. Uh, uh, Boneheaded, one some might say uh, statements about about rape. Uh, so she was really helped out, plus a Democratic turnout. And then in 2018, when you don't have a, a Democrat at the top of the ticket to help drive turnout uh, in Democratic areas, you know, she she ran what amounted to a very good race and still lost pretty solidly to Josh Hawley. Yeah, and I you know I think for 2020, I think it's interesting because this is the 2014 class. This is a re- good Republican right. year. Uh, kind of, it was still kind of an anti-president Obama mm-hmm. uh, or Obamacare you know, backlash. And but now these new these Republican senators are up in a very different environment, a Republican president instead of a Democratic president. And that's where you know, Cory Gardner's situation is much different than the initial one he was elected. in. And Gardner is is an interesting case too because I mean he he came in as you said in in sort of a, a you know a very good Republican year in 2014 they wrested back the majority from the Democrats after four cycles since 2006 the Democrats got it in 2006 and and they held the majority in in a in a very bad Democratic year in 2010 uh, sort of by the skin of their teeth so they they extended their majority for you know four Congresses four election cycles and then Gardner, you know, ran a very good race in 2014 in a state that Obama won twice, Colorado. And, uh, and he was up against somebody who didn't run a particularly great campaign, Mark Udall, uh, uh, the Democratic incumbent. And now he, you know, and then he ran, it to ran, on, he ran the Senate campaign committee. He's a very popular guy. He's a nice guy. And he's probably got a lot of things going against him in 2020. Right. I mean, Democrats are, would argue over whether he's popular or who he's, who he's popular among, partially because of that national profile and the shifts of the state. But, you know, who are we seeing as one of the one of the first Republicans to, I think, advocate for a reopening the government uh, was Senator Gardner. Right. And I think part of that is maybe who he is, but also the state that he represents and the election that he's facing. You know, I found fascinating talking about these, the timing of Senate elections. When you looked for the first two years of President Trump's administration, who were the senators who were criticizing him the most? They were either senators who weren't up for re-election in 2018 or senators who were retiring and not up for re-election at all. Um, You know, that's why moving forward to 2020, looking at someone like Nebraska Senator Ben Sass, who has been a critic of the president, but now is going to be facing voters and, you know, potential for a primary if a challenger were to come up. But that if you're in cycle or out of cycle, I think it depends. It it affects your politics. Certainly. uh, Kathleen Parker at The Washington Post, the columnist, she had an interesting column today about Lindsey Graham, and she even sort of makes fun of this. It's like, oh, you know, Lindsey, he's just in cycle, uh, talking about his shifts in position, being from a a severe critic of the president um, when he he himself was running for president, and now being sort of the the president's golf buddy. And, and, And 
help, you know, saying that he should invoke emergency powers. Well, he has to face the voters of South Carolina uh, in a primary and then in a general election uh, in, in a little over a year. And I mean, that certainly explains a lot in, t- in terms of behavior. Um, one, one of the other sort of fascinating uh, characters that we see up for reelection is the majority leader himself, Mitch McConnell. Yeah, you know, Kentucky is a red, you know, is a red state. I think that he's taken on some water just by being such a, a political, uh, just a, a leader of the party and viewed in, in such a political light. Uh, I expect him to have, I'll say a competitive race. We didn't put it initially as a as a toss-up or even competitive, but someone's going to run it. I think a credible Democrat's going to run against Mitch McConnell. There's going to be millions of dollars spent in the race, people who want to defeat him. If someone like, if that race turns into a toss-up situation, you know, Republicans are are probably hurting in other more competitive states than that. And one one of the things that, I mean, as sort of a student of the Senate myself, I'm, I'm fascinated by is that you, you wrote that the the Republicans seem to have a slight edge right now just because there aren't that many seats, you know, that, that are competitive. Uh, and what we see, if you look back the last 30 years or so, almost 40 years, is that the Senate, you know, after after 1956, the 1956 elections, there wasn't much of a change at all uh, in, in the House and, and Senate majority. But then in 1980, in the, in the President Reagan's first victory, there's a big flip in, in the Senate and uh, Republicans regained the majority for the first time since 1956. They lost it in 86. They got it back in 94. They went to a draw in, in uh, 2000. And, uh, and and there was a little back and forth because there was a 50-50 Senate. Um, and then, you know, the Democrats got control back or the Republicans got control back in the 2002 election. Democrats reclaimed it in 2006. In 2014, the Republicans got it back. And, you know, so it seems to happen every three or four cycles, in, at least in the last, you know, four decades, that there is a flip in Senate control. And and that can be frustrating, I think, for, for people who see like, oh, well, obviously public opinion is here, which you can see in House elections and in, in, in the sentiment like among the public with like the House. But in the Senate, sometimes there's a lag, especially if you have the predominance of states that are Republican who are, who are voting in any one given cycle. Right. You know, I, I know that there's frustration with some of the electoral, you know, even the electoral college and things. But, you know, having a president on a four year term, the House on two year terms, the Senate on six year term, it's almost like the founding fathers had something in, in mind about, <laughs> about staggering, about right. staggering some of these elections. And instead of there being, you know, upheavals of the entire government, you know, cycle in and cycle out if that's if everyone was up uh, at the same time. And, and I guess one thing that comes to mind is I feel like there's this emerging narrative that Democrats may never get the Senate back because of the consolidation of Democratic voters to a smaller number of states and Republicans and representing rural states. I just don't believe in a permanence in our politics anymore. And I think that Democrats have a shot at the majority in 2020. It's getting more difficult, but things change. There's nothing, no one is is forever going to be in power. I think I have a number of books, you know, from the 90s about the permanent Democratic majority and then in the <laughs> yeah. mid-2000s of the permanent Republican majority. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the, and but one of the things that struck me, too, about your, your race ratings is that, um, I mean, this is a general rule of thumb, but the, the, the somewhat vulnerable Republicans are people like Gardner and possibly Tom Tillis from North Carolina and David Perdue from Georgia. These are all Republicans 
that are are in from fast growing states and and where we don't know you know like there there are so many people moving to a place like North Carolina and Georgia that the politics seem to change quite frequently and some of the more democratic uh, some of the more vulnerable Democrats rather are from states like Minnesota and Michigan that where they you don't see like a huge influx in population that doesn't mean the population is not growing but it's they're not changing over like their very populations like we see in a place like North Carolina where it went from in the course of a couple generations a, a an agricultural and sort of light manufacturing state making furniture to a high-tech state that features a lot of people moving from the Northeast because that's where the jobs are. Right, and that's what's encouraging to Democrats. They believe demographic demographics are on their side, particularly in some of these larger states, while the states where Republicans are holding on are decreasing um, in in population. That doesn't necessarily matter as much for for the Senate since it population isn't isn't taken into account. But the other dynamic I see that's interesting talk about those vulnerable senators is that a lot of a lot of the old time senators and ones who may have become uh, lackadaisical a little bit or, or lazy in their reelections aren't up. I mean, these are fairly new. These are senators, some of them like Cory Gardner, who's up mm-hmm. for his first reelection. And um, I think they're going to be more on their game when it comes to campaigning and right. what it means to put together a modern campaign where the past few cycles we've had senators who may not have been up for right. the task because they just haven't had to run a real race. And certainly somebody like Gardner who ran the campaign arm knows exactly you know what polls to look at and yeah. how to run a modern operation. And he may end up being one of those senators who sort of like some of the Democrats who ran in 2018 and lost that he may run a perfect campaign and still lose because the state just doesn't, there's not as much of an appetite for a Republican senator in Colorado right now. One uh, other person I'd like to talk about, too, a little bit is Joni Ernst, who is, you know, she was a, 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 certainly a Republican star uh, in the uh, 2014 class. She's she's young. She's in her 40s. She's the only woman in Republican leadership in the Senate. And she's up and she's not, I mean, you, you have it as likely Republican, mm-hmm. but it's still not solid Republican. Sure. And she, it'll be interesting to see how she behaves in the midst of the shutdown and also with if she needs to go her own way in stances for her state because she's not going to contradict Mitch McConnell and the leadership, but she also needs to tend to her constituents. And if they start getting a little antsy about the way the Republican you know, White House and Republican Senate are running things, we might see some departures from that party line or uh, the sort of an awkward silence from her. I, I think there's going to be, because there are so few women, Republican women on Capitol Hill, I think there's going to be some maybe some extra resources devoted to her. You know, Iowa is kind of fascinating. I expect it to be uh, competitive at the presidential level. 2018 was kind of a mixed bag. I expected the Republican governor to lose. Uh, she did not. Uh, she won an mm-hmm. election to a full term after ascending to that uh, ascending to that office, but Democrats did very well in the House. They picked up two seats, almost picked off uh, Steve King. And Who so has some was, of his own problems now. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard <laughs> right. a couple things about that. Uh, so it's kind of a, a mixed bag. You know, we'll see who and who, who. I think the state points to a competitive race. We'll see who ends up uh, running on the Democratic mm-hmm. side. Candidates, uh, candidates do matter. One uh, one thing, you know, again, shutdown related too is that Chuck Grassley, the senior senator uh, in, in Iowa, has already said. You got to get this thing together with food stamps. I mean, the, the agriculture department is is one of the departments that is furloughed, um, and 
whether or not people get, you know, their 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 benefits. You know, this isn't even to mention the farmers and the and the aid that they're supposed to be getting because of the trade wars that are happening right now. But I mean, food stamps. I mean, Grassley put it in very stark terms, saying, you know, you when you see sh- food shortages, you tend to see political revolutions and stuff like that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it just seems like Iowa is at the you know, sort of precipice of of a lot of these political changes, even if it's a place that is a relatively conservative spot. And, you know, I've, and I probably said it in our conversations before, I think one of the the worst times to evaluate the political fallout from an event is in the middle of an event. And so until we know how this ends, but is it going to do some lasting political damage because of uh, maybe local speci- locally specific or when you're dealing with people's food. I mean, that's a big mm-hmm. – people don't – aren't going to forget that. But what does it look like? But then other, what are the five, six, ten other news events that are going to happen between now and November of 2020? They're going to be on people's minds, and we just have to wait till we get there. We have to live through that and, and wait till we get that far. Well, Nathan, thank you for talking about the race ratings and just the, the political stuff. And we look forward to the next batch of race ratings, of course. Absolutely. And these aren't set in stone, people. Right. We, you know, <laughs> we'll evaluate. We keep evaluating these. So it's, we got to start I somewhere. I saw you with a stone and chisel out there, though. That's right. I mean, never I, change. Never change. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Nathan. No problem. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. And please take a moment to write us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, you can visit rollcall.com or you can find us on Twitter at rollcall. Thank you for listening.